Good morning, fellowship. Let's stand together. Let's celebrate the goodness of God. I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures that fade, I never know. Then you came along and put me back together. Now every desire is now satisfied here in Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship. Uh, Happy Father's Day. Um, It's a great day to be a dad. 
Uh, it's great to be appreciated. And so thanks to all you moms who are on top of it, I'm sure. Uh, it's usually the opposite. Uh, on, on Mother's Day, it's like, hey, guys, remember, by the way, I trust moms. They're just so responsible. They've already got it covered. Um, well, hey, welcome. If you're new, we're so glad that you're here, and we would love to connect with you. And our prayer is just that you would experience the presence of God while you're here in this place, and then also while you're with people as you walk your day. Um, hey, earlier this morning, we had the honor and the privilege and the joy of seeing uh, a father baptize his son, Noah, and to celebrate with him. And we always want to make sure to share that good news with you guys. Uh, one really fun and funny thing about Noah is I was hanging out with him in the back before the baptism, and I found out that he is currently building a washing machine. Just last week, he fixed his parents' washing machine. So if you need some help with a washing machine, <laughs> Noah's your guy. He's, he's eight, is that right? Yeah, he's eight. So uh, I don't know how that works as far as legality of employing him, but he's your man. Hey, uh, God is here. There's no place that God is not. He's always here, no matter where here is. Uh, we were talking about this a couple weeks ago in our community group and just marveling at this reality. It's kind of a duh, but don't we forget? Don't we forget? Um, and, and the story that we were working through a couple weeks ago was the miracle of Jesus walking to the disciples on the water during the storm. And when he walks up, he says, do not be afraid. I am, right? So he basically comes up and he says, stop freaking out, guys. God is here. That's what I am means. He's saying, I'm God and I am here. You don't need to be afraid. And so we kind of were thinking like, okay, what could that look like? Let's do a little experiment through this next week. As we come into these encounters, maybe it's conflict at work. Maybe we have anxiety about upcoming things. Whatever it may be, what, what might happen if we stopped and just realized God is here? How might that reshape how you engage with whatever you're doing? And so a fun experiment, we had a couple people come back, and I just want to give that to you. I want, as you head out this week into whatever it is that you do, just remind yourself, God is with you. God is here. And, uh, and I love this from Psalm 105, 4. Um, this is Eugene Peterson's uh, translation of the Bible. And uh, I love the way he phrases things quite a bit. He says, keep your eyes open for God. Watch for his works. Be alert for signs of his presence. And this is one of my favorite quotes, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She says, earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. So we want to be able to see. God, would you give us eyes to see you for who you are, to see you all around us, to recognize your presence among us. Maybe in places that we've never seen you before, would just this week, would you just awaken us to your presence? And God, we know that in these times together, like this morning, we get to put you before us just to behold who you are, so that we begin to recognize you outside of these times. So God, would you do that work in us? Just wanna give you a second to just breathe, close your eyes, just exhale, come to rest in his presence this morning.
walked across the pages of time. He who made every living thing, behold him. He who heard humanity's cry, left his throne to wake as a child. He became like the least of us. Behold him, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, the Lamb, the Roaring Lion. Oh, be still and behold him. the blind, the lost, and the lame. Even now he is in Behold him. He who chose the criminal's end, paid with blood to settle our debt, buried death as he rose to Stand with us as we declare this. He is holy and he is here. And he is worthy of all of our praise.
we need you. Every hour, every moment, we depend on you. And you're here. You're with us. God, thank you for that reality. Teach us to to look to you in those moments, in every moment, for the life that you promise to give us. God, thank you for showing up in your word. Thank you that we can always look there to find you. And so thanks um, for time this morning to spend in your word. And thank you for for Hunter and all the work that he's put in to prep this teaching. Um, God, I pray that your spirit would just speak through him to each of our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name. love the, the simplicity of that line. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. I need him this morning. I need him when I leave from here. 
as a father, when I go parent my children, I desperately need him. And so very, very grateful for all that he's done and that he'll do this morning. My name is Hunter. I'm one of the pastors here and I've had the privilege to teach a few times now and realized I've never introduced you to my family. And so this is my bride, Alex. Uh, we have been married for over a decade uh, now. We have three children, Hank, Duke, and Bill. It's our country band. And uh, they are the sweetest, calmest, most well-behaved children you will ever meet, okay? Uh, they're absolutely perfect, as you can tell uh, from that face right there in the middle. We, we've been at Fellowship for over a decade now, 11 years or something like that. And uh, back in 2015 is when we started making our transition from Fellowship Rogers to get ready for this campus. And I was leaving a pastoral role with the Rogers team to start working with Bentonville families as the, um, the student pastor. And we were trying to move to Bentonville, right? We wanted to live where our people are. Don't you love the Bentonville housing market? Like, it's the best. Even uh, in 2015 as a youth pastor, man, it was hard. And so we looked and looked on and off for, I think, almost like two years. And uh, in, in the midst of looking, we actually got pregnant with our second, Duke, which is what happens when you just sit around looking at Zillow all day and don't have anything to do. My wife is shaking her head at me. I'm sorry. Um, and it was great. We finally found a house, but the problem was it all ended up falling on the same weekend. When they wanted to close, when we were going to close on selling ours, when we were having a child, all the same weekend. But I am a planner, and I can fix anything with a good plan, right? So uh, since we were due on a Sunday, I'm a genius and thought, well, we'll just close on a Friday, and that'll give us plenty of time, right, to take care of everything, uh, and so five days before our due date, on a Tuesday at about 2 a.m., we found out we were having Duke a few days early. So as you can imagine, my plan was thrown out the window. Uh, he came in later that Tuesday evening. We came home late Wednesday night. We packed all day on Thursday, and we moved on Friday. Uh, it was a great weekend, right? Super easy. Um, and the, the cool thing about that whole weekend experience, there was a lot, but I had tried to overplan everything, right? And it was actually the weekend that we were really introduced to the love of Fellowship Bentonville families who just showed up and just took care of pretty much everything for us and helped us transition physically from Rogers over uh, to Bentonville. But that's one of the many examples in my life where I come to a problem and I think that I can find the right solution, right? Because generally, I tend to think of problems having a good solution and a bad solution. And the more that I've lived, the more I've realized that most solutions are not dichotomous, right? There's not just two options. One is good, one is bad. In fact, as I've followed Jesus, I've realized there's a third category called God's solution, which generally goes against any logic or reasoning that I might have for choosing a good solution. Um, when you think about the story I just shared, like, bad solution for me would have been to just wing it um, and to, like, just kind of go with the flow and see what happens. The good solution was to plan every detail but God actually used that experience to teach us to depend more on people, more on him, to invite people into our lives, which can be really, really hard on me. And so this is something we see a lot, not just in our lives, but in Scripture. If you think about the miracles that we've covered, we're on Miracle 7, the raising of Lazarus today. But if you think about these first six even, there's this pattern that Jesus does when he steps in to perform a miracle. Usually the people, whether it's disciples or general public, have this preconceived idea of what Jesus should do to solve the problem. Like, they know what the good solution is, and every time Jesus does God's solution, because he is God. So whatever he does, that is God's solution, and more often than not, it goes against the reasoning of what the people were thinking. Now, sometimes in our lives, God's solutions can be laughable, right? I tried to plan every detail of the birth of a human around my schedule. That is probably laughable to God, it's laughable to me now. Like, you just, you don't get to do that. But there are other times, we actually get into a situation, and God allows something to happen, and he allows us to sit in something that's actually really painful, and it's not our solution, but it's something that, that he allows to happen. And more often than not, I think we actually would rather choose good solutions than God's solutions, because something is revealed in this that pain and, and God's glory and his plan, they're not always mutually exclusive. In fact, a lot of times, 
they're actually going to go together. Uh, we're going to see that this morning in this seventh miracle. And there's a deep truth revealed in here about God and the way that he interacts uh, with his people. We've seen Je- Jesus deal with lots of uh, pain in these miracles, with embarrassment, with shame, with inconvenience. And now he's actually going to step in and deal with the ultimate enemy of sin, which is death. This also might be one of the most drastic differences between what looks like a good human solution and the way that God actually proceeds in the situation. So we are in John chapter 11. If you have uh, the scripture and you want to open it up physically, I would invite you to do that. Um, John chapter 10 actually ends with Jesus escaping capture and stoning, um, and so he gets away, and, um, and then he's met very quickly in chapter 11 with a problem, and we're going to see what his solution actually is for that problem. The problem is really simple. We see it in the first couple of verses that there's a man named Lazarus who is sick, and this is a sickness that is leading to his death, and you'll see in verse 3 there that Jesus was very close with this family. Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, who we've heard before in Scripture, but we've never heard about Lazarus up until this point. But we see clearly that Jesus actually loved him. He loved this family. So the problem is simple. Lazarus is sick. A bad solution from our perspective would be for Jesus to do nothing, right? Just to see the problem and go, hey, not my problem, and step away, especially for someone who, who loves this man so much. A good solution would be to step in and heal him, to, to take this sickness away. We've seen Jesus do that for people he barely even knows, right? And so he, he absolutely could do that. So surely Jesus, who's empathetic to this family that he loves, would step in and heal him and prevent him from dying. He can get there quickly. He's probably only a couple of days journey away when he finds out this news. Or, as we saw with the miracle of the official son, all Jesus has to do is speak from afar, and Lazarus could be healed instantly. And it's pretty clear those are great solutions for this problem of Lazarus's sickness, but the rest of the story is all about God's solution and what he's actually going to do to move past a felt need and get to a real need in the lives of these people. Now, two caveats, two things to know as we start. Number one, this uh, passage is very, very dense and rich. Uh, It's 44 verses that we have to cover today. And I was joking with one of my buddies, Adam, as we were watching the Razorbacks win yesterday, excuse me, um, that I don't want to give a couple of minutes on each verse, even though I could, um, because I don't think y'all want that either, to sit here for, you know, two hours or something. So the caveat is I really want to encourage you as a family, um, personally, to examine this this week. There, there are nuggets everywhere of wisdom that we can learn and apply to our lives, and we're just going to hit just a brief overview of it today. But the second thing is that I actually love to have a lot of fun up here and tell jokes and stories, and there will be some of that this morning, but as we talk about death, as we talk about one of the, the, he- the heaviest things that we face as humans, there's not going to be as much of that. Instead, we're going to get to really see a truth about who God is, what his character is, and how he deals with us. Uh, through some of these things. So here's an overview of the story, right? You've got Lazarus who's sick. Jesus is actually going to wait. He's not going to heal him. He's going to take his time getting there. He's going to let him die. He's going to interact with the sisters. He's going to grieve with them. He's also going to give them some truth. And then he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And it's actually going to do a lot for Jesus's journey on this earth too. And this is a very pivotal uh, miracle. It's the last one that he'll perform um, on earth here. And so that's the story. And you see one of the, the most important parts of understanding why all this unfolds right from the beginning. When Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, notice how he responds. He says this, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so you see some sovereignty of Jesus. He says this illness does not lead to death, which is interesting because it actually does lead through death. But he says that's not the ending for this one. This is going to be for something way greater. And Jesus is revealing his sovereign knowledge even from the beginning. And like I said earlier, this is where we see that truth that pain and hard things and God's plan and his glory are not always mutually exclusive. 
And that's a hard thing as a follower of Jesus to wrap our heads around sometimes. But when I see this, and I see that Jesus hears that someone really close to him is sick, what I'm expecting is for him to run there, to drop everything he's doing and to run to heal him. But it says he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He waited. Why would he wait and allow them to go through that? And it makes me ask this question, is making someone wait for something, for freedom, for deliverance, for healing, is that a wrong thing? And sometimes the answer is yes. That's called injustice. Uh, and I can't think of a more appropriate example of that than the other holiday that we celebrate today. It's not just Father's Day, but it's also June 19th, which is Juneteenth. And um, we look back at the abolishment of slavery and the lives that black Americans have had to live in this culture. And there's been this waiting process for freedom and for equality that could have been and should have been corrected a lot sooner. And, you know, this is one of those holidays that's really close to my heart because of where I grew up. Uh, I'm from West Memphis. Uh, if you can't find me, uh, I am the muscular kid on the back row over there. And as a white kid in a predominantly black community, I was actually the minority and would watch a lot of my friends have to go through some things and deal with some things that I never did because of the color of my skin. And when you think about even what Juneteenth uh, celebrates, the abolishment of slavery, it still took two and a half years from when slavery was, quote, abolished to actually having it, you know, eradicated and we're getting to see some of the effects of that. And then it still would take another hundred years to move even closer towards equal rights, and there's still remnants of pain that people have to go through today. And so uh, that's why we stop and we celebrate, you know, the steps towards equality for all men and women being created equal in the image of God. Did you know that churches were some of the first people to celebrate Juneteenth, to celebrate this equality? And so sometimes asking someone to wait for healing, for freedom, is an injustice. It is wrong. Is it wrong what Jesus is doing to his friends here to actually not proceed and to make them wait in this pain? Well, I think God is kind enough to reveal that answer to us in this. And you'll see in verses five and six here, notice how they go together. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. He loved them. So when he heard that he was sick, he waited. That defies my logic, right? I don't fully understand those two things going together, but that's what we see here. It brings up a lot of questions. He loved them, so he waited. I couldn't understand if it said he cared about his glory, so he waited. He wanted to perform a miracle, so he waited. But it says that he loved this family, so he waited and allowed this thing to happen. He loved, so he waited. And this waiting would actually lead to more pain for them. It would lead to the death of Lazarus. And again, we see that God's love and the pain that we go through are not mutually exclusive. And there's a deep truth in here about God and how he, he moves in us in painful situations and how we have an opportunity to actually grow and to learn more about him and this has been helpful for me to understand that because I still wrestle with that principle. But if I were to tell you that there's a map of the world up here, would you believe me? Like, do you see North America over here? See it? South America. I'm not going to name all the continents because I'll get one wrong, right? But they're up here, right? But you can't see it. What, what happens when I change the background and I add some, some contrast? And now you actually see the beauty of what was there. And it's not a perfect illustration, and I still don't fully understand it, but I really do believe that sometimes the hardest things in life give us the best backdrop to understand the deep love and hope and joy that Jesus brings. Now, I will still ask why a lot of times. It still leads to questions, especially when it's in my own life. If I'm looking at your situation, really easy to say that, but when I'm the one in it, it's tough. And if this concept still leaves you with questions, why would Jesus allow them to go through this pain? Guess what? Uh, the rest of the story is Jesus interacting with these different groups of people before he performs this miracle, and they all have questions. And it starts with the disciples. They're the first ones to bring up a question in this. And their question is actually not, Jesus, why are you waiting? Their question is, wait, 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 why are we going back there? And they remind Jesus that, hold on, 
you realize that's where they just tried to stone you. People tried to kill you in this area, and you want to go back for this guy who is sick? And it's another reminder and example for me that Jesus is not on earth for self-preservation. He is on earth to live out the will of his Father, no matter where that may lead him. And he explains that to the disciples through this kind of veiled illustration of light and darkness, and they don't fully understand it, but what he's telling them is as long as he's walking in the will of the Father, it doesn't matter where, he's go, that, where he goes, that is his safest place to be. And there's an invitation for the disciples in that too, where he's offering himself saying, hey, you are safer with me as we walk into darkness than if you were to sit over here in safety by yourself. And so he has this dialogue with the disciples, and he tells them that, hey, Lazarus is asleep. And they're like, well, if he's asleep, then just let him wake up. Like, we don't have to go there. And Jesus does what he has to do. He speaks to them plainly and says, okay, let me explain it. Lazarus has actually died. And get this next line. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. The wording is really important. It's not, I am glad that Lazarus suffered. I am glad that Lazarus had to go through this. I am glad that Lazarus died. I am glad that I wasn't there so that the glory of God may be revealed through this. That the disciples' faith would be strengthened, that they would believe. Still, as I read it, man, it feels kind of twisted. It it feels hard to to understand. But why? Why allow these things to happen for the sake of God being glorified. And there, there's a, a lot of times when I come to stuff in Scripture that maybe it's not that I don't believe it or agree with it. It might just be that I don't fully understand it. Um, and rather than dismissing it, I'm reminded of this Augustine quote. This is good for all of us to be reminded of, that we believe what we like in the gospel, but we reject what we don't like. It's not the gospel that we're believing. It's ourselves. And then that's how cults begin. That's how heresy begins, when we just kind of find what sounds good to us and cherry-pick those things and form our theology around that. But we see an example of Jesus allowing some painful things to happen, and it's really hard to understand why, especially for the people in that situation who may feel so hopeless and desperate and in grief, but Jesus sovereignly sees something different. So he starts heading towards the village. He waits a couple of days, but then he goes. And as he gets close, he finds out that Lazarus has been dead for four days now. So it's obviously taken him a little while to get there. And that four days is important for a couple of reasons, but there's going to be no faking death at this point, right? Four days is a long time. Decomposition is well underway. This guy's been sealed in a tomb. There's no possible physical way that he will come back to life and ever walk the earth again. And we see here an important little nugget in this story that the Jews actually come to Mary and Martha to console them. And there's a couple reasons why that's important, but one of them is that the Jews are about to get to witness the glory of God. The Jews who are debating, is this Jesus actually the Messiah, are about to witness what he is going to do. And so Mary remains at the house. Martha hears that Jesus is getting close, so she runs out to him. And now that Lazarus has died and she sees Jesus, what's the first thing that she's going to say to him? Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. When I read this, I don't see anything inappropriate in Martha's response. I think it's a healthy balance of grief and faith, of sadness yet of hope. Like, she knows the power of this Jesus. She believes in the power of this Jesus. She had hoped that that power would be displayed in her brother so that he wouldn't have died. But still, she holds on to hope here. And the next 10 verses, we're completely skipping, okay? Um, It's the I am statement of Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And that's actually what we taught on Easter Sunday. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that for context now that you really can see where it's at in the story. But Martha has questions, and so Jesus gives her answers, and he gives her the truth that she needs to hear in her grief. But then he sends Martha back, and he says, send Mary to me. So Martha goes back, and Mary comes out to meet Jesus. And this time, the Jews actually come with her, so this is not a private conversation anymore. They're going to get to see how Jesus interacts with Mary. 
And she comes out, and what does she say? Exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But notice the difference. Martha continued the sentence with, I know whatever, whatever God grants you, like he, he can grant that to you. I trust. Mary continues, but not with words. With what? With tears. With weeping. You've got the, the same situation, but two women, two sisters, who are wired very differently, as we've seen in other parts of Scripture with their stories in it. And Jesus doesn't give them some stock answer. He actually interacts with them in the way that, that they need to experience him. Right? Martha needed answers, so Jesus gave them to her. Mary, she needs tears. She needs empathy. She needs his presence. It leads to every young kid's favorite verse to memorize, right? Jesus wept. And it's Jesus actually sitting here with this woman, being the presence of God that she needs in this moment. And what an encouragement for us as we as the body of Christ minister to people in the midst of pain and grief. You know, spitting truth at someone in a really hard moment could be the absolute worst thing that you could do. And on the flip side, not giving them the hope of Jesus and the truth that he brings in that moment of pain could be just as wrong. And so we trust the Spirit and we ask him to lead and, and we learn from Jesus. We study what he does. He's not only good at it, he's perfect at it. He's the definition, the prototype of what it looks like to do this well. He's, he's tenderness without weakness and strength without harshness, and he does it all in a perfect way. But how could he be so strong in one moment? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this, Martha? And so vulnerable in the next to weep. And I think we are, we're getting a visual, an image of the God-man at work that Jesus is fully God, and yet he is fully man. He is sovereign. He knows what's going to happen. But man, he feels it like we feel it. And you see where it says that Jesus is deeply moved and greatly troubled? Uh, it, it, it picks that back up in verse 38 and says it again, that he's deeply moved again. And, and, and what this means, it's kind of literally translated like the snorting of a horse, okay? That there's just anger in him, that it's mixed with his sadness and there's anger. Why would that be? Think about what he is staring at in this moment as he walks up to perform this miracle. It's tombs. It's graves. It's death. And he's seeing visually what Satan has done to wreck the perfect creation of God. And it causes him to be deeply moved. And ultimately, it causes him to act. This, this truth is just as important as that first one. Jesus loves, so he waits, but y'all, he cares, so he acts, and he steps in, and he is the son of God. He's seeing the remnants of what sin and death have brought, and it's bringing him to this moment. And notice, we've seen the disciples question what Jesus is doing. We've seen, in a way, Mary and Martha question, like, if you'd just been here, this would have been different. And now we actually see that the Jews are going to question him. The, the Jews actually go, man, this, this guy who he loved, like, couldn't he have saved him? And so we've got all these questions, and so Jesus actually stands up to perform this miracle. What are we, 25 minutes in, and we're finally getting to the miracle, okay? It's here, and Jesus does this to start. He says, take away the stone. Now, Martha brings up a very good point uh, in this moment, right? And she says that, hey, Jesus, you haven't done any miracles yet. Like, I haven't seen you raise Lazarus from the dead in this moment. Like, the miracle hasn't been done. And you're asking us to remove this stone. You realize what that's going to smell like? He's been in the tomb four days. You saw a picture of my boys. Raising three sons is smelly, right? Very smelly. Uh, think about welcome mats uh, at your home. A lot of people have them, and they say, like, welcome, or gather, or we're glad you're here. Ours has one word on it. It's poop. Um, because, one, that's my kid's favorite word, so they think it's funny every time they walk in the house, but we also want to let people know before you enter our house what you might hear or smell. Like, it's a legitimate warning for you. <laughs> in, raising, in raising three boys, though, as smelly as it can be, I can't imagine the fear in what this would smell like, but not just what it would smell like, what you might see, 
Like, let, okay, Jesus, let's say you have the power to raise our brother from the dead. I don't know that I want to see him. Like, what will his body be like? And I think there's this fear here, but Jesus says, hey, listen to me. Didn't I say that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? Take away the stone. And then he thanks the Father. Then he goes to the Father in prayer. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And again, this is all before he's performed the miracle. You think there's some sovereign confidence happening with him? And with a loud voice, Jesus steps up in front of this tomb and he says the words, Lazarus, come out. I think it was Augustine who said, it's a good thing he said the name Lazarus or else the tombs would have erupted. And like, can you imagine what that had been like? But he calls this man by name and he sovereignly and divinely breathes life back into him through his words in a way that only God could do. Not only that, Lazarus is still bound, and somehow he comes to the front, and Jesus is like, unbind him and let him go. That's it. That's the miracle. There's a little bit of conversation that happens with the Jews, but we don't get much reaction from, from Lazarus or even Mary and Martha in it. But what we see is that the division that's happening in Jesus's life really solidifies. Those who have faith are beginning to really believe, and those who want to see him gone are dead set on it. And in fact, this happens, you know, right before um, Jesus is going to walk to the cross just days before. And I think in a lot of ways, the Jews, remember, they're here witnessing it. I think this leads to the triumphal entry of there's Jews going, this really is the Messiah. Look what he did. But there's another group of them, if you read later on in chapter 11, that weren't having it. And they realized that if Jesus becomes this power, they saw him as a political power, says he was going to take the power from their nation. And there was this fear of losing national control at his expense, so they wanted to get rid of him. It's another topic for another day. But it makes me go, okay, who was this miracle for? If that's the miracle, who's it for? And I'm just going to say this. I don't think it was for Lazarus, right? Think about it. This guy had gone through the pain of death. He had gone through a sickness that actually led him into the grave And he enters this temporary state of eternity, of perfection, right, waiting on what was going to happen with Jesus, but but he doesn't have to worry about tears or pain or or anything like that anymore. And then all of a sudden, he starts getting pulled back in. Like, I think the reason we don't have a lot recorded about Lazarus, because I wonder if in the grave, he just sits up and goes, are you kidding me? Like, I'm back? Nothing about the story says that he was given a resurrection body, one that wouldn't fade, that we will all be given one day. I think his disease was reversed and he was brought back into a dying, decaying body. And I also don't think it was for him because guess how many words we get recorded from Lazarus in Scripture? None. We never hear from him. In fact, the last thing that we hear about him is that not only were the people plotting to kill Jesus, but they were plotting to kill Lazarus because he was a living witness. So who was it for if not for him? I think there was three groups of people that really got to witness this. Number one, it was for Mary and Martha. Their brother had died, and Jesus met them in that pain and in that grief and actually gave them hope and comfort when they needed it the most. I also think it was for the disciples, and Jesus was trying to get their eyes away from the immediate pain and death that was before them, and if he could do that, then maybe they'd be adequately prepared for what was about to happen to him. But then it was also for the Jews who got to witness it and a chance to believe in him as the Messiah. Some did and others didn't. And my guess is that we could all benefit in one of these three areas, one of these three camps this morning. All of us get to witness the power of Jesus over death just by reading this text. And we get to see who he is and it brings us hope and faith in the midst of some of these things that we go through. Some of us may be like the Jews, though, where we're just watching from afar And we see these signs and we hear these stories and I have to ask you, like, what's it going to take for you to believe in him? If not this, if not the truth of the gospel, of his resurrection and his death, what's it going to take? But my guess would be that most of us probably could use what Jesus gave to Mary and Martha. That we're going through something difficult. That we're in a situation that we are asking questions like, why would this happen? And we need the comfort and hope of the Savior who promises to be with us in our pain. You know, when we hit problems, I think most of us probably would run after good solutions before God's solutions because we're human. 
And God's solution often goes through pain in this world. And I can assure you, um, we were actually sitting with Matt and Johanna Musgrave, they're our neighbors, and we were having dinner the other night, and we were talking about this passage, and um, this, this kind of statement came up, that, that we, we will never find joy and peace without suffering, like when we're away from it, if we can't find hope in it. Because if you can't find hope in suffering, you'll never find peace outside of it, because there's always fear of suffering coming. But what Jesus has called us to is actually to find him in the midst of some of our most difficult and hard things. And you can make the argument that it's in those deepest, hardest, darkest moments that the best, greatest love of Jesus is revealed because the greatest act of love ever to happen was the one that was the most painful. When Christ chose to become man and chose to go to the cross and take on the sins of the world. And so if you're like me and you're in here asking, man, but still, why do bad things happen? Like, why would God allow this? I think Doug Rain said it so eloquently last week of maybe the better question is, hey, we don't know, but what is Jesus trying to teach us within this? Nowhere in Scripture is sovereignty equated with unconcerned arrogance or an inconsiderate exercising of authority. But in fact, I think we see these two truths in our own lives today, the same one from this story. You know what? Sometimes God loves us, and so he waits. And we may not understand that. But he promises us that he's near to the brokenhearted, that he comforts us in our weakness. The Great Commission says he is with us always. And there are other times where he steps in and he acts. We live in this in-between where we seek to follow this Jesus, waiting on the hope of all evil and sin to be eradicated, but we're in the middle of waiting. And Jesus calls us to cling to him in that moment. One of the things that he's given the church to do in this waiting period is communion. It's, it's an act of not only remembering what he's done on the cross, but really a hope of the future return so that we keep our eyes fixed on him and everything we do. So we're gonna, we're gonna observe that together this morning. Um, as we sing, go ahead and stay seated for this first little bit. We'll pass communion and hold on to it. And I'm gonna come back up and lead us through it uh, here in just a few minutes. Sin had left to 
Just like Lazarus, oh, you brought me back. 
problem is that sin leads to death. And there's some, some bad solutions to that. One of them we see all the time is just, hey, this life is short. Let's just live it up while we can. I can think of some good solutions of, God, just take us out of this place. Like, let's just get rid of it all now. But for us, that's not God's solution. And the crazy part about this story of Lazarus, it, it would be just days later that Jesus would go to the cross. And so by raising Lazarus, out of the grave, he actually condemns himself into it. But praise be to God that he took on death for us because the only path to life is through death. For us, death to self, death to sin, and for us, Christ's death on the cross. And that's what we get to experience when we follow him, even in the midst of the painful situations that we have on this earth. That hope that only he can bring. And so Days before, or days after this happened, as he's about to head to the cross, he actually gathers his disciples, and he wants to give them some of that hope to hold on to. And so he tells them that, hey, as we break this bread, I want you to continue to do this, not just in remembrance of what I'm about to do on the cross, but to have your eyes set on me for the future in hopes that I will return. And so take this bread and eat. And he brings out the wine as a visual of his blood that's going to be shed on the cross. And he reminds them the same thing, that I'm going to do this for you. So one, don't forget that. But two, have hope that my blood actually covers sins and you will see me again. And that's the same hope that we cling to. So we take and we drink. Jesus, all we have, all we are is yours. And we love you. And I'm so grateful that like Lazarus, getting physically raised, God, you breathe life into us through your death. It's the only life that we have on this earth. It's the only life we have after this earth is through you. God, we love you and we're grateful for you. Pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You guys take a seat for just a couple minutes. This is one of those mornings that I'm sure many of you, there's something stirring as you're sitting in the painful situations that you have. And so I want to remind you, that we love to pray as a body of Christ together. And so we've got Colleen and Gordon who will be over here. And one of the best things we can do uh, in our hardships is to go with others to the Lord. And so I uh, wanna invite you to pray with them and allow them to pray over you after this service. Uh, we wanna help you guys get connected uh, as we go through life. A, a quick kind of specific one would be for any 20 and 30 year olds in here, part of my role is to help minister alongside of you. So male, female, uh, married, single, young kids, it doesn't matter. If I haven't met you, you're not plugged into community, man, I would love to do that. Uh, there's so many young people moving to the Bentonville area, and one of the best things we can do as a church is provide a place for them to be known and loved and to meet Jesus and walk with Jesus. And so one specific connection opportunity even within that, if you're in here and you're engaged or seriously dating, we're gonna be running our first round of merge small groups uh, starting in just a few weeks. It's an eight-week small group experience, premarital experience. And so maybe you're not in that category, but you know someone who is, send them this info. Uh, we've got Josh and Catherine Bashaw who are going to be leading that uh, for us. And I've vetted them. They know every answer to every question that comes in marriage. So it's going to be a great summer of growth together with them. Would love for you to take um, advantage of that. Fellowship Bentonville, I love getting to do life alongside you. Love getting to follow Jesus with men and women who also love him. And so uh, we get to do that together, not just on Sundays, but this week. So we'll see you somewhere in the community this week. Have a great Sunday.